The rose has a name. No, wait, we're not doing we're not doing more echo right now. Although I I promise there is more to come. We need to talk about comedy. We need to talk about labyrinths. But first, I am happy to report that I found her. I've tracked my pigeon down, and although she's transformed a little bit, so you may or may not recognize her. And and thanks to the conversation that we had about Sir Ver uh, Lord Verulans, Ver I don't know how to say that name, S Bacon Science, Hans is back to explain more about what is science and what isn't science. So we're very happy to have the pigeon back, Kilts, and our guest Hans G. Schantz. Welcome to the Mosaic Arc. Dove has become <laughs> electric. <laughs> I just walked into the internet. I decided that's it. I'm online all the time. If I'm terminally online, I might as well become electrified. That's where she went. I thought she'd gone somewhere in real space, right? Claims, <laughs> claims to be out of internet range so that we cannot project images anymore. I think she's just been transformed <laughs> transfigured columbine the transhumanists got me they got me well they sold me on it <laughs> birds are real it's kills no way <laughs> permanently streaming yes i think i think i think so i think i i could i you know i could i i, I could get used to this rainbow bird the rainbow bird i think is a good look for you yes <laughs> it's felt it's felt very strange to not be here uh uh for the stream the last couple of weeks but uh no i i'm i'm not actually digitized uh i'm not Yet. i'm not joining the, the ai humanist. she's not become AI. No. <laughs> no i've done the opposite i ran off to remind myself <laughs> that we have a physical reality and i'm enjoying nature Un unaugmented nature mm. out in Australia so uh, it's been lovely uh, and kind of timely as we're all discussing AI and the effect of artificial intelligence on everything oh, yeah. and so yeah watching watching the Australian bush kind of thinking about everything and uh, <laughs> a very it's a, there's a very strange kind of um, contrast I'm looking at ancient forest 
untouched ancient forest and then small patches of uh human development mm. high-tech human development at the same time so it's kind of appropriate i think that i'm i'm streaming with you guys you and hans uh today um <laughs> And we're talking about science because I'm looking at it. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm just so happy you're back. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, you know, that's good. The, the, that was hard. That was really hard going just by myself talking about how the rose is the rose. It's, it's like, you know what? That great comic novel that we read was itself a giant joke. Oh no, um, and mm. and and really, I think is now. I, I recognize it's my my own theme of, you know, why isn't Christ at the center of all of the stories that we're telling and look and looking at that library and realizing that library had no core. Mm. Yeah. So so we promise we promise that one we figured out how to get her in here without <laughs> having to, to worry about bandwidth on on video, which is which is great, and. We will carry on the conversations we've been having. And to, the, tonight, tonight, Hans has stayed up late. I, I've rested him out of his own time zone to, to, to be here with us in the non, in the intertimes um, to carry to tell us some more about the work he's doing in um, electricity and magnetism and such. But but with the segue from what we were telling you guys about the new Atlantis Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I've lost track. There is no time, right? You can look it up on the previous episode. Um, and, and, and therefore, the dangers that we've gotten into. Well, anyway, I should, we should let Hans come in and, and, and say hi. Hans, say hi to everybody. Oh, no, he's gone silent. Turn your, you turn your audio back on. Oh, no. There you go. You muted yourself. <laughs> Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to voyage on the Ark with you and Kilts. Well, we're we and welcome back, right? You, we 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 wrestled you in here in the in the great marathon last summer. So uh, we're, we're, we got Patrick back. We got you back. This is this, we're going to have to get Chuck Dixon back too when we talk about AI and art and drawing. So I, you know, I think there's a theme going on here. Return visitors are good for us, um, and we will say mm -hmm. we have been reminded. In the in the arc um, sort of conversations that we've been having in places like Social Galactic, that we really need to tell you guys how to join us more easily, because <laughs> if you're if you're simply watching here in the YouTube's, no, no, and we're going to hope to put this to good use tonight with 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 Hans, that if you subscribe to unauthorized.tv, you not only get our videos and everybody else's videos but when we're live as we are right now you get to ask us questions live right so that th this is good subscribe to unauthorized.tv through logos and history so that you could support our work and that we can pay real human artists and not just charge the bots um and um and be with us in in our ongoing streams and, and searches uh, if you're not ready yet to you know, like take the plunge and subscribe to Unauthorized TV, you can be in touch with us if you join our list and buy our books, please, because then you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, Hans, it's your turn. <laughs> that Hans, Hans is such is such is such a good guest that he gave me slides, and it's now you're you're on slides for the arc, Hans G. Schantz. I, I like that. We've got slides oh. for the arc. <laughs> 
Oh wait, that wasn't the title mm-hmm. page. I should look. No, he gave us he gave us first first he gave us a suggested outline, which you are going to ruin us. You realize by telling people what you're going to say first, they'll ne- they'll they'll never let us off the hook again. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm old school. I'm I'm one of those tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said kind of guys. We're doomed. Why do we let him back? Okay, what are you going to tell us? Well, I thought we would start by revisiting the previous episode that you and Kiltz did by looking at Bacon's new Atlantis and uh, take a look at uh, how Bacon was an inspiration for modern science, but more interestingly, for more modern scientism. A lot of about the importance of experiment and observation, uh, that was in the air already. There were plenty of people, predecessors and contemporaries of Bacon, who were approaching science in that kind of way. Bacon's unique contribution was he talked about the, the industry of science, the organization of science, collective science in the interest of the of the state in particular and to uh you know further the goals of humanity in general and it's that aspect of uh, bacon that i wanted to uh, at least eventually end up discussing uh sometime this evening yeah we may interrupt you to get you to explain stuff so don't don't be distressed if we don't get through all of the slides you promise I, I, I have to bring me back again. Oh, that's fine. I, I did try to warn him, like, you know, we, we, we may have questions, right? So, and, and in fact, we have we have the, a bumper audience. We have more people than have ever shown up. We've got Chris Hawk says, good evening, Professor. Good evening, Chris. And Nibmeister says, howdy, y'all. Um, Ken is staying up late again. No eggnog this time. Eggnog is bad. Did you have eggnog last time, Ken? <gasps> Uh, and Mel is here. Aloha and Casey and Manuel. So everybody's here. Everybody's here. I don't know who else is here because they haven't, they haven't chatted. So, um, science versus scientism, right? It's like we have here, here we have bacon, but make it's new Atlantis and modern science. And it, you were going to tell them what we should have said about the new Atlantis. <laughs> well, I, I think you were taking a little different, uh, uh, it's a myth it's a fable come on you're trying to make it science well i mean the uh the new atlantis was a myth it was a fable but it was also a blueprint for the kind of organization of science and the pattern of science that uh bacon was trying to propose and that at least in part came to fruition with the founding of the Royal Society a few decades after Bacon's death and was you know, explicitly the, the pattern that a lot of uh, Englishmen and the British Empire took for trying to uh, make science a tool in their efforts at world domination. So before so, before we started, I was talking about how I'm rereading one of Terry Pratchett's books on on the printing press. But knowing that Terry Pratchett started his Discworld series, the Flat Earth on the back of the Turtle series with the wizards at the university, I still think it's a magical school. The Royal Society, wizards. 
Okay, you you're gonna have to I give like a, a little overview <laughs> of, of of Royal Society, Hans, because I was I was ranting at someone who gate crashed my uh, my chat a little while ago about giving me Royal Society papers, and it triggered me so badly I couldn't stop <laughs> ranting <laughs> about forty five minutes. <laughs> oh, and they said, "Why do you care? Why do you care?" I said, "Don't show me Royal Society stuff." So, I... <laughs> so yes, we, you're you're, you're oh, gonna I have to exactly convince us that get, founding this Royal Society is not just you know like messing with it the sounds so great. messing with the fibers of the universe. <laughs> well, well, it that... sounds so great. Well, that's not the royal that's, society. Well, that's not the the explicit goal. And in in, I, I suppose I should have warned you about this up front. I've been published. <gasps> He's a so. wizard. Oh no! Okay, that's it. I'm going back. <laughs> but uh, interestingly, in their origins, they were not really a formal uh, society made up of scientists. They were a a collection of nobles who had to contribute. A rather princely sum for the day to be members. And it was only uh, over the course of time they became more and more focused on uh, science. It was really to start with more of a social club where uh, elite Englishmen would get together to to have a you know chats to have a, a gentleman's club and you know to, to share communications and letters. Uh, of a scientific nature, but it was not the kind of scientific society that we we see today. Oh, so basically, just like the universities. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Hans. <laughs> okay, so and and Rich Royal is it that that is actually the founder? Is Charles Charles II? Uh, Charles the uh, Second, like within. A month, maybe within weeks of him taking the throne, the Royal Society was founded. So, you know, it was something that what, you know, people were thinking about in uh, the background, and it was all ready to go as soon as the the unpleasantness of the English Civil War and Cromwell and uh. all that got uh, put to rest, and there was some civil stability in Charles II. Uh, took the throne, and almost immediately thereafter, the Royal Society was founded. So it was part of an attempted new beginning for uh, British power, of course, that then got interrupted a couple decades later by the Glorious Revolution. So what you're saying is monarchy is better for science than democracy? <laughs> you love to put words in my mouth, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, fight I'm... back come on this is the this is the mosaic arc what do you think this you think this is a, a club wait i said it was well, club it drake no it <laughs> is we do cockfights here well, don't you know all scientists want to have uh you know patrons and funding and it's very tempting to look to the sovereign to the king or to the government and say, oh, we're doing, we're, we're undertaking a noble and worthy goal, and you need to uh, open the royal treasury or you know, uh, you know, open the taxpayers' coffers and fund a lot of money to us so that uh, we can you know, pursue our noble purpose without having to worry about money. But the strange thing about 
you know, taking the Dane Geld is you never get rid of the Dane. <laughs> In this case, you always end up with the government wanting uh, to get value for their money. And if there's a particular narrative that the government wants pushed, like, for instance, we could talk about climate change, uh, you know, 97% of scientists who are, you know, paid to support climate change agree that it's a real threat. Amazing, you, isn't you it? Up- I, I will say, we have a request that you put your volume up a bit. Maybe I won't be able to put words in your mouth if you can talk over me. Oh, I am not sure if I can do that. <laughs> put your volume up or talk over me. <laughs> I can certainly talk louder. I'm very good at okay, that. Okay, project. Uh, we need we we need full Shakespearean performance here. Whoa. Okay. Uh, well, I'm just saying that uh, it's not so much a matter of whether monarchy or democracy is better for science. It's uh, there's an there's a tension between centralized control of science and scientific freedom. And when scientists start taking uh, money and doing the bidding of the sovereign or the government, they inevitably end up finding that support is conditional on supporting the government's goals and actually hinders the, the course of independent inquiry. Well, this actually is what your, your purport... Your proposed real topic is, which is science versus scientism, right? The the problem of what can what is science versus the corruptions that we end up with in the way it's funded or the way the questions are asked. Which is it? Well, it's the way it's funded certainly has an influence on the the course of science. I mean, Bacon had some very good things to say about uh, what he called the commerce of the mind with things. Mm. I mean, he talked about the importance of making empirical observations. You don't just you know, sit in your study and read and compile the great thoughts of those who came before you. Uh, you have to actually go out and look at things and gather data. Uh, he also talked about the importance of uh, systematic study and experimentation, not just passively looking at what's going on out in nature, out in reality, but deliberately setting up experiments to uh, change the parameters of nature and see what effect it has. And that kind of thing had been done before, particularly in optics. Mm. But his, his emphasis on doing experiments to learn about reality was... Uh, at, at least he, he captured an emerging uh, trend that was critical to the development of uh, future science. And you know, one of the other things, and we'll probably get to this a little later, was he did a very nice job talking about cognitive biases, what he called the idols of the mind. Oh, you have a slide kinds, on that. Here we go. Uh, the kinds of things that uh, would distract uh, uh uh, investigators from uh, making a an, an objective uh, look at how the uh, uh, how reality is working. And do, do you want to discuss the idols then? Yes. Uh, he talked about what he called the idols of the tribe, and those are the kinds of cognitive biases 
that are uh, common to uh, all people in, in his view, that there's a human tendency to, uh, to oversimplify things, to you know, arbitrarily leap to conclusions without considering other possibilities, and uh, to view the world from an uh, you know, anthropocentric point of view. Mm. You know, people look at lightning and assume that there is a, a particular being responsible for the lightning. Uh, they, they tend to anthropomorphize uh, what they're seeing in nature or try to relate it to the things with which they are most familiar and jump to conclusions that may not be warranted by the evidence in front of them. So that's the, the idols of the tribe, the, the cognitive biases that are common to everyone. Uh, the second is uh, what he called the idols of the cave. Those are the unique biases that are uh, inherent from someone's personal experience. You know, if you have been working with clocks and working with gears and clockworks, and that's what you are most familiar with, all of a sudden you start to interpret things in terms of, uh, you know, gears out making, you know, biological creatures working, or you apply that model, that model that you're most familiar with. So people really ignored that one when they started talking about the the watchmaker, the divine watchmaker. (laughs) Well, that's, that's kind of a different thing altogether, but, uh, you know, the, the kinds of, uh, uh, things that you get with the idols of the cave are basically confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. If you you come to the subject matter with some preconceived notion of how it's supposed to work, and then you just look for the facts that fit your model and your biases, and you focus on those, and you ignore the facts that uh, might contradict or are difficult to explain with your model, and you know move forward just reinforcing your own prejudices. So that's an example of what he would call uh, an idol of the cave. Okay, so the tribe is human propensities or so- social propensities that, you, that yes. you're likely to go with what what you have believed in tradition or what, I mean, it's, is, that, it's, is the idols of the tribe going to be things like, I don't know, you, so you mentioned the climate change, maybe if you help people to see how we're still trapped in all of these um the 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 we we haven't got the the is the climate change example you gave the marketplace is we getting to that one well it fits it's it's probably more an idol of the marketplace okay so so we'll leave that one but the 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 idols of the tribe would does that fit with things like the mass formation that we've been dealing with of when suddenly the group is all believing something or, or yeah that common common tendencies that are inherent to humanity as a whole so you know mass formation would and and that kind of phenomena uh the, the madness of the crowds okay that's exactly that would be something that would be considered the idols of the tribe but but then it it also includes things like you say religious belief is that going to fit in the idols of the tribe if you considered the tribe more narrowly mm. within a particular group of religious believers, you might, I, I probably, I think you'd, you'd probably interpret that there. I, well, so I, I love, so I was, I'm glad, I was glad that you wanted to talk about these idols. Cause I thought when one time you were telling me about bacon, I thought this was that he's trying to predict the ways in which you are going to make mistakes 
in terms of your yes. interpretations. And right. that we, what I'm going to, which, which one did he succumb to? Um, that <laughs> we are always going to be, because this is for me as a historian, very interesting that you're always thinking within the narrative or in the story that you have used to frame your understanding and that we can't actually see anything without a frame. It's like the edge detection problems. If it, 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 our experience in the world without some kind of cognitive labeling is is not, is is chaos, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 it does. Well, yes, to, to the extent that those kinds of things are common to uh, all the members in a society, because the society <clears throat> shares a common narrative around which it's interpreting events, then that would be an idol of the tribe. The idols of the cave are really more unique to a a particular individual. I mean, okay, I, I can, okay. I can tell you this. I can tell you the story about how I went off to college with uh, fourteen different bath towels for for showers. If you want an example of the the uh, idols, okay, of the cave. <laughs> I, it's the bath towel. <laughs> my mother was my mother was giving me a hard time about that one at one point, and I had to. I had to look at her and say, and where did I learn this this propensity for sanitation that required you to use a new towel every time you, you took a shower instead of just hanging it up and letting it dry? That was my, my father's practice because he was a, a salesman of pharmaceutical chemicals, and he was very conscious of staph infections. He was selling these to uh, you know, cleaning chemicals to hospitals and things like that. So he was just hypersensitive to sanitation and, mm. and uh, uh, you know, washing a towel after every use and, and so forth. And I honestly didn't realize that certain people were so unsanitary as to reuse their shower towels multiple times until after I went out to college and discovered. I'm surprised so, you took 14. You do you do laundry every other week? <laughs> well, normally every week, but I had that emergency buffer. Oh, a full week. week's buffer. Okay. So that that's the example of an idol. Of, of okay, so I'm going to push you. Know, individual idiosyncrasy do your the peculiarities of your background. right. But I'm wondering, it's like, is, is does Bacon get far enough to realize that he's going to be trapped by some of these himself? I don't know. I mean, he's obviously he's aware of the problem, so I would imagine he's you know, trying at least to. Uh, look out for those problems in his own thinking. Mm. But of course, we also have to take a look at how the ultimate results of his his program and his thinking were the results of other people's interpretations of him and their application of his ideas in uh, science in particular and society in general. Okay, well, let's do the other two idols. So the marketplace, that that one seems more easy. Is that one straightforward or is that one? Well, that one I'm understanding, it's more related to misuse of language and hmm. you know, his concept of the, the commerce of the mind with ideas. Well, that commerce takes place through the medium of language and words. So hmm. uh, it's a case where you can have ambiguities or misinterpretations by the misuse of language or using unclear uh, verbiage. Like, for instance, mm. uh, the concept of climate change is an excellent example of an idol of the marketplace because people will bandy about the term climate change, right. but 
really, the climate always changes. It's always changed naturally. And what they really usually mean when they're talking about climate change is anthropogenic, anthropogenic climate change, man-caused climate change. So, you know, people will take a look at a flood or a heat wave or a drought and say, aha, it's climate change. And I mean, that's kind of a tautology. The, the weather's always changing. The climate's always changing. The critical question is, uh, is that something that can be scientifically demonstrated to be the result of, you know, whatever fraction of CO2 emissions can be attributed to uh, humanity? And that's a much trickier and more difficult and more subtle question that is largely ignored in the climate debates. Well, and there's also underneath that is, oh, but but it's it's not just climate change. It's it's climate change we don't want to happen, whereas we could be trying to change the weather. And then you know that that doesn't fit in what people mean by climate change. Climate change is this is this boogeyman kind of thing to be afraid of because we're not in control of it. I mean, it's anthropogenic, but oh, it's it, it's accidental to our purposes. So, but well, climate change. But in the marketplace, it's right. like that the, the recognizing that that rhetoric is used with like layers and layers, and this is what I tend to worry about more, right? Layers and layers and layers of assumption. It, it, well, James O'Keefe had a very nice uh, piece that is worth looking up, where one of his undercover investigators interviewed a CNN uh, reporter and got to talking and uh, the CNN reporter acknowledged that, well, now that COVID is winding down, we've got to keep the, the fear and the tension amped up and the next topic du jour is going to be climate right. change. So that's that's what they're focusing on right now to try to uh, keep the, the public in a state of fear and anxiety so that people are more easily controlled. But it's, is Bacon, is bacon I, in our new Atlantis, we were attributing well, I think unintended. I don't think I. I don't actually think Bacon meant to, you know, create the dystopia of of modern science fiction. However, <laughs> um, he's is is he worried about that kind of manipulation? Uh, he certainly calls out the possibility of it mm -hmm. and is uh, uh, alert to the fact that uh, that kind of manipulation can take place that you know these idols of the marketplace are uh he's basically highlighting the tools that an unscrupulous person can use to try to uh, fool or mislead people in a scientific or in a general context okay so what what we're getting we're getting to here is that bake the reason people look to bacon as the father of modern science is he's trying to clarify how we are um, not deceived. Um, he's trying to cl clarify how we get to true knowledge, and and these these idols are things that get in the way of our being able to see clearly. Okay. Yes. And so there's the the idols of the theater. Well, the idols of the theater, and I I should have mentioned that's more when you were talking about the uh, uh, religious belief. Mm or the, uh, uh, the, the propaganda or the, the dogmas that are accepted by society in general, those are the idols of the theater. And that's, that's a very interesting connection when you consider the, uh, the strong evidence that Francis Bacon uh, may well have been the individual who either wrote or at least 
was responsible for coordinating the people who wrote all of Shakespeare's plays, which I don't know if that's a topic that you want to uh, go well, into. Well, now that you've evening. mentioned it, <laughs> the, the, the short well, version of it, because we, we, we do want to talk about the, science. <laughs> well, the, the idols of the theater are the uh, the influence of dogma and propaganda. So in mm. that sense, the, the narratives that we share, that we look at, uh, uh, that, that we filter all of the events happening around us, uh, those are examples of the idols of the theater. And, you know, it, it is kind of an idol of the tribe to be vulnerable to that kind of thing. It's a common characteristic of all humanity to have these stories with which we organize what we see around us. And we try to fit reality into those, uh, those stories. And the the, the problem you have to, or the, the thing you have to look out for is wedding yourself to a particular story instead of having multiple models that you're constantly testing against each other to see which provides a better explanation for uh, what's going on. In fact, uh, you know, just last week, Charlie Munger, who was the uh, investment partner of Warren Buffett, uh, he, he died last week. Uh, a, a couple decades ago at a conference, he was commenting on models, and he said that if you have just one model of what's going on, you will inevitably lose your money in a finance context, mm. because you will always strain to make the facts fit your particular model. And that's that's very good advice in all contexts. You want to try to look at uh, events and you know, both scientific and uh, the course of human events, all in a context of throwing as many models at them as possible so you can try to figure out which model is doing a best job of fitting the facts instead of trying to fit the facts to your model. Okay, so when, when Bacon's thinking about all these idols, we have um, the, co the categories of things that he's thinking about tend to be in the natural world, yes? Is he doing psychological studies? I mean, it's like when we look at him as, as defining science, what does he bring? We have your next slide is, I should, I'm looking at your slides so I know where you're going, but um, scientism, that, that, is this, is this well, we an idol or we should go back? Yeah, we should go back to the New Atlantis and modern uh, science. Okay, I'll do that. I'll um, go back. We kind, of, we kind of skipped the scientific program okay. that, We're back. Uh, that Bacon had. So you know, I was saying that the key thing he brought to bear was making science a collective endeavor. So instead of the lone researcher, you know, in the library reviewing the books of old or or going out into nature and making observations, he he wanted it to be a collective endeavor, where you know scientists would have uh, assistance and that they would work as teams mm. trying to solve these problems and, and do experiments and, and so forth. And that was really a, that was a novel worldview for the time. He also very strongly uh, emphasized the empirical or the inductive approach to science, gathering facts and drawing conclusions from them. The uh, most trusted and overwhelmingly used mode of science to that point was really more deductive reasoning. And everyone took, for instance, geometry 
as the archetype of a good, valid science. We start with these axioms. We uh, assume that these axioms are intuitively obvious, and then we deductively infer from those axioms all the principles of plane geometry. So people tried to come up with similar axioms in different fields from which they could deductively infer uh, all that was was going on. That often led to to flights of fancy, uh, again, where people were deliberately trying to make the facts fit their model instead of finding the model that best fits the facts. And Bacon's, uh, to Bacon's credit, he you know, revived the kind of you know, original uh, Aristotelian inductive approach to things of looking at the data and letting the data speak and say what's going on instead of trying to impose some preconceived model on the data. So that, that was a major uh, benefit to Bacon's approach. When I, I was thinking, yeah, it's like, did people do team stuff? I mean, the universities do disputations, which is you know knowledge arising out of the need to answer questions. It's well, it's it's so it's so it's such a default now. I mean, even we're a team at the you know the Dragon Common Room. We're a team of poets and artists, right? That the sort of team approach. You know, when you said that, I was like, okay, did people not do teamwork? I mean, it's and 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 it's saying that that is in Bacon's program in the New Atlantis when he's describing all those houses of 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 research, right? The the Solomonic houses. The main thing about them is they are teams, right? That they're 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 mm -hmm. saying that they're going to do this study together. And now I'm sort of puzzling. It's like really nobody did that before. How funny! I can't think of an instance. I mean, I'm sure that investigators had assistants to help them, right? Uh, you know, you can take a look at some of the the scientific instruments, like workshops, right? You Would could, you have you workshops go, or probably yeah. you could go all the way back to like perhaps the Antikythera mechanism? Uh, that was probably not the work of an individual uh, uh, craftsman, and that that no doubt took a team of craftsmen under the direction of some more skilled uh, engineers and tinkerers to put together that. Uh, you're, you're familiar with that the uh, the astronom the mechanical astronomical calculator from ancient Greece. I've seen it in a movie. No, <laughs> isn't that that's that isn't they you isn't that what they're supposed to be looking for in the newest Indiana Jones? I have not. Yeah, yes, I've it is. It's no, I didn't. I only it. watched reviews of how terrible it was. Um, but it's uh, I I think that that's what that is. It's the it's yeah, it's the that. They f Never mind. I do know what it is. Well, that that surely was an example on one level of some kind mm. of teamwork, but that's really, I don't know that that was necessarily a an hour. I mean, no one knows exactly the circumstances under which it was made, so we can only only okay. guess um, that that may have been an early example in trying to figure out scientific principles. Okay. All right, so but, so but these are these are fun. the strong positive um, things that he brings. This this collective science is empirical and experimental. I was more aware of that. Practical and ethical for the good of humanity. Yeah, he was 
uh, he very strongly advocated the power of science to make life better for humanity. And in fact, his, his program of having a society guided by the enlightened scientists, I mean, it's kind of the the, the uh, a scientist king analogy to Plato's philosopher kings. Mm-hmm. You know, they can mm-hmm. that the technocrats needed to be the ones who were in charge of society. The 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 deep thinking, uh, you know, wise researchers were the ones best suited to guide the course of society. And those kinds of principles are uh, you know, very much alive and well today in technocracy and in the whole transhumanist movement of yeah see then we're to... then we're in the new atlantis again <laughs> so right, so i right. mean if he is if he is casey saying shakespeare made a lot of science references some more obvious than others if bacon is behind the you know the the, the plays which I'll, I'll leave just open as a possibility is is we're back at wizards right it's prospero well yeah, w- wizards who are ultimately responsible for controlling everything that's going on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they just it, 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 Bacon. He just ends up being sinister, no matter which way we go. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have to persuade me otherwise. Here we go. Well, he has he has. Um, okay, so doing the idols of the mind. Can we go to scientism now and say what he what he's predicting how the bad part comes? Well, this is not so much uh, what Bacon is uh, predicting, but rather what has arisen from Bacon and ah, others okay. in terms of... The unintended the, consequences. The, yes. And I found this marvelous essay by uh, Alexander, a, a Dutch mathematician named uh, Alexander uh, Grothendieck, and he was talking about the new universal church. And his concern was how scientism was rapidly becoming a religious faith that was pervading society. And the interesting thing is he wrote this essay in 1971. It's well worth uh, looking up. But he had a very nice uh, definition of scientism, talking about some of the basic principles involved. And, you know, the the definition of scientific knowledge as uh, what can... Uh, that the true scientific knowledge is quantitative science. You're kind of going back to, uh, I think it was Rutherford who scoffed that, uh, you know, if, if you're not uh, measuring things, it's not real science, you're just butterfly collecting. That, you know, you have to be making quantitative measurements to be doing real science. And in particular, quantitative measurements that can be repeated in a laboratory setting. So if you follow this recipe, you will get these numbers on those instruments coming out. That's true science and true scientific uh, knowledge. And that only that kind of knowledge is, uh, you know, real or valid. And everything else is, you know, uh, not, not trustworthy and not knowledge of as high an order as scientific knowledge is this is this not then it it sounds like so science has become one of these idols it's what growth and is showing that the degree to which we've made an idol of science in effect it's our modern day idol of the theater if you will Mm -hmm. that it's the dogma that is widely 
accepted in society today and really is a main uh, avenue or rationalization for the tyranny that we're facing. You know, it's, it's the, uh, you're led to this very mechanistic view of nature. Uh, everything is uh, instrumental. You have cause and effect relationships. You poke the buttons. You make people do what they ought to do as guided by the experts. There is no free will. Uh, there is just uh, you know, guiding people under the influences of their benevolent overlords who know what's best. Well, maybe not for those people, but for society as a whole. And that gets you into the whole you know, technocratic paradigm. Only the experts are qualified <clears throat> to make uh, the kind of decisions that affect society as a whole, and that only science and technology uh, can solve the problems that face us. So I, Hans, I, I now I'm puzzled. Like, so is Bacon responsible for this, or is this just an accident of his setup, or where where does Bacon fit in your story? Then he's 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 the hero, or he is is he the villain? Who's I mean, the thing is, well, I don't know. I don't know what his intentionality was, but the the what we were trying to talk about in the New Atlantis episode was saying he has projected all of this technocratic rulership. He, he laid out the blueprint for it. Right. You know, at the same time, he was talking about idols and cognitive biases and the importance of empirical experiment. Whoops. He was saying that those were all, <laughs> those were all tools that the, the technocrats should use to work out the best uh, solutions in the service of using, uh, uh, of using science to control humanity. I, I'm not persuaded yet that he's not, you know, the bad Prospero here. Well, he laid out the blueprint for it. Oh, and so we have, we have him say, he's like, when a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth and philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. Wait, that sounds more, that sounds more promising that he knows what he knows that there's a risk. Well, I think that he definitely, uh, he, he would probably, well, I, I don't know, he, he was probably a Christian who would have been uh, appalled at having the you know, Christianity replaced with scientism, but he was also certainly a Gnostic who thought Christianity wasn't the whole story, and, uh, you know, depending on who's in you, you take, uh, you can see in a lot of his writings precursors to a lot of the uh, Masonic or Rosicrucian ideas of there being these hidden truths that the, the Christian fable is what's told to the masses, but there are these hidden Gnostic truths that the masses don't know, that only the enlightened are uh, aware of. And that, that segues and complements very nicely the whole scientism idea, the idea of the experts who are in possession of the truth and are enlightened and, and therefore can you know, do what they want uh, to society as a whole. Yeah, we were right. <laughs> Hans, did you mean us to get here? So you ha you gave, I mean, you said you have this Gnostic concepts in science and that you're saying that 
I, 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 I'm, I'm torn here. I'm torn. I know, I know from your, oh, you can tell us about your own work. Um, I know from your own storytelling that you are worried about the way people control access to knowledge, but I'm, I'm not clear that in your own thrillers, which you can tell us about now, um, this is, this is, this is the commercial part of our, of our segment <laughs> that I, I think we, I think we need a confession of faith here from you. Which side are you on? Um, well, I think that... <laughs> is he, he going to flush the gang signs? Is he I don't know. He, is, he claims to be orthodox. <laughs> How many degrees are you, Hans? <laughs> Tell everybody. <laughs> oh, well, I'm not allowed to say, of course. <laughs> but uh, no, no, I, yeah, I think just wink, just wink twice if it's a double-digit one. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell anybody. I, I, I can never, I can never reveal the secret truths that were uh, and handshakes that were given to me when I picked up my PhD degree under penalty of having it revoked, <laughs> as, as Rachel, I'm sure, can can attest. I love, but, I uh, love at our graduation. Our president always he has, the script he has is like, you know, you well, it's, I can't. It, it's different for each of the levels of degrees, but there's always this thing about welcome, welcome to our ancient and honorable company of scholars. And I'm like, University of Chicago was founded in 1892. <laughs> What's this ancient? <laughs> He's trying to attach us to this, you know, this longer narrative, right? Going all the way back to I don't know how about far back. <laughs> well, to, just to be clear, I think the modern fixation on scientism is exactly the kind of an idol of the theater that Bacon warned us against. It is very tempting for people to believe that, uh, particularly narcissistic people, that they are among the elite in possession of this hidden knowledge that they know better than all of the other ignorant people who aren't enlightened and don't have this hidden knowledge of the world and and how it works. So yes, I, I do reject that uh, that perspective. And it's fascinating to see how it has uh, corrupted the course of science because, People who have made that kind of uh, you know, scien uh, scientism or, or Gnostic approach to science are people who are thinking in terms of, of uh, dualism, things you know, where you are inverting reality and where you are trying to blend a, a union of opposites in order to sound particularly... Uh, uh, erudite and to you know to to embrace a contradiction because you are so clever that uh, even though lesser minds view it as a contradiction, you can see beyond what they uh, can see, and that really was a lot of the thinking behind wave-particle duality, which is central to uh, my work. I mean, people saying so that modern modern science is 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 grounded in this gnostic mystical co contradiction it, it really is when you take a look at aha we found your secret mechanics, your secret purpose now when you take a look at how quantum mechanics came to be i mean the, the concept of it, it's really a, a very ancient uh, debate of whether reality is a plenum is it a continuum 
uh, like Aristotle believed? Or is it made of particles? Is it made of atoms in a void, like uh, you know, Democritus and Leucippus uh, first advocated back in uh, the times of ancient Greece? And those two dueling worldviews have gone uh, back and forth. I mean, you can go to Bacon's time. You know, not long thereafter, you had uh, Descartes talking about uh, reality being a plenum and there being these vortices in the ether, and the vortices are what were carrying the planets around the sun. Uh, and then you had Newton come up with his mathematical law of uh, gravitation, which in the hands, I mean, and Newton was, was pretty scrupulous to say, look, this is the mathematical description of what's going on. We don't know why it happens. He got a lot of criticism for that uh, because of uh, being accused of claiming that there were occult powers involved somehow. And in a sense, that's a literal truth. They're hidden. No one knew, and and still, there's there is uh, uh, you know a, a great deal of uncertainty and doubt exactly how all that works even today. What what is the the mechanism that makes gravity work? You know, in general relativity, they'll talk about the geometry of space and you know matter causing space to curve and the curvature of space causing matter to move and. But it's, it's still more of a mathematical description than an underlying understanding of the processes and mechanisms that might be involved. But anyway, what, what happened is Newton's interpreters took what Newton came up with and reinterpreted it in the service of a world model of point particles acting at a distance according to mathematical laws. And so by the time the 19th century began, the prevailing worldview was everything is a, a cloud of these point particles. They interact with each other according to certain mathematical laws, according to an action at a distance, and there's no particular process or mechanism between them that uh, gives rise to this. It's just this particle somehow knows a particle over there is doing something and follows this mathematical relation in reaction to the particle mm -hmm. over there. And that uh, was you know, the, the best available interpretation, and you know, all the math uh, described those kinds of processes. People like Coulomb and Ampere wrote the laws of electricity and magnetism to explain that. And it didn't make sense to this guy named Michael Faraday, who did not really have the mathematical skill to follow the models, but it just the notion of something over here affecting something over there and not having a... Or, you know, some, you know, continuity of action or influence between the two points. That didn't make any sense to him. And he came up with the concept of a field pervading all of space. He reintroduced the Aristotelian plenum, uh, if you will. And then uh, uh, Maxwell was able to take Faraday's ideas and use them to generate the laws of electricity and magnetism, you know, as we understand them today. <clears throat> After a bit of reinterpretation, from uh, you know, Oliver Heaviside and some of Maxwell's uh, successors. Now, the interesting thing is, after that you know, triumph of the plenum, uh, all kinds of quantum effects started to be discovered, and the plenum got uh, discounted and dismissed in favor of going back to the original you know, atoms in a void picture, only this time all the forces are conveyed by particles, and that's what explains these cause and effect relationships between the, the atoms in a void. And that's, that's why 
you know, the, the cutting edge of physics is called particle physics mm. because it's believed now that all of reality can be explained in terms of these particles and their uh, interactions with each other. But then the sticking point there is those particles have, they have wave-like behaviors that are difficult to understand. And it's fascinating. You can see this going all the way back to Newton. You know, when Newton did his optical work, he believed inherently in a, you know, he, he was, again, kind of discreet about talking about mechanisms, but it's clear he thought light was a physical substance. It was particles. But he noted that those particles had to be imbued with a certain wave-like nature. They had, uh, you know, fits of easy and difficult reflection that followed certain uh, wavelengths and, and you know, certain uh, harmonic frequencies that uh, when he did the calculations turn out to be the, the wavelengths of light as we now understand them today. But anyway, when quantum mechanics came up, people noted that uh, uh, waves had particle-like properties and particles had wave-like properties. And the, the solution to that conundrum was to assume that a photon uh, was a unitary, or particles in general, were unitary objects possessed of both a particle nature and a, non, a local particle nature and a non-local wave nature at the same time. So they, they were you know, two things at the same time, a union of opposites with mutually contradictory properties. And uh, the, the key uh, premise of my work is looking at electromagnetism and how energy flows in electromagnetism and realizing that the waves and the particles are two different things, that fields guide energy, and that if you track the path of energy in an electromagnetic system and the path of the fields in an electromagnetic system, they are going different ways, they're taking different paths, they cannot be... Uh, aspects of the same thing. They are two different things. And that's, you know, that, that's really the bottom line conclusion of uh, my work that's really kind of fascinating and novel. Great. Okay. So <laughs> now you guys know why you need Hans's book, because I know that he's just summarized what he's written in the, in the Fields and Energy book. And now you know why he needs to tell us back up Back, 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 back up. How do we get to understanding what you just said? Which is, <laughs> I, and no, and, and the thing is, I think that that, that was that was important because that's the, the packed in dense version of what you've shown in your in your Fields and Energy book, which he is, um, is it out? Is it releasing in parts? You're going to be, I mean... I'm, I'm serializing it on uh, etherzar.substack.com is my fields and energy substack. So uh, chapter one is out and uh, as well as the author's introduction. And in fact, it's relevant to a lot of the topics we're talking today because I'm talking about the models of science and how science is a series of stories that we tell about reality to try to understand it and that we try to validate with our experimental analysis and the importance of having multiple models with which to look at what's going okay, on. Okay, so you're going to show so, us some of uh, that now. Well, I've already, I don't know if I have any slides. Okay, well, did, well um, so, so that's, yeah. that's a, see now, commercial ended, buy his book. <laughs> and, well, the book, the book. Okay, yeah. buy the other books because 
um, you, I mean, you have the sort of thriller version in the Hidden Truth series about how this understanding of of fields and energy was available, but potentially overridden. Well, that that was that's the thing that still blows my mind, and I haven't quite come to grips with how this could possibly happen. But I take a look at the, the stuff I've done, and it's it's really pretty simple. I mean, this is at worst maybe undergraduate introduction to E&M uh, kind of thinking. You, you don't need to have a really sophisticated mathematical background to get the, the physics here of taking a look at what happens when fields and waves interfere with each other. A, uh, an electromagnetic wave has equal amounts of electric and magnetic energy. They are in balance with each other. And when you have two waves interfere, that balance is upset. But when that balance is upset, some of the energy slows down. And if you have a, a constructive or a destructive interference, it all comes to a rest momentarily at the moment and at the location of that interference. And then as the waves pass through each other, they'll exchange energy. And it's, it's very easy to see what's happening and to understand it. And in fact, I went back there, there's a little bit in Heaviside's electrical papers where he's talking about interference and how it works. And it reads just like the analysis that I did, only he doesn't take it to the next step and explain how waves are exchanging energy one with the other. And I'm still just astonished that no one else, as far as I've been able to determine, came across that and pointed it out. It's something that should have been discovered by Heaviside or Hertz or one of their contemporaries. And you know, I thought it would be kind of interesting to take a, a look at that of, well, what if maybe they did discover it? And to explore, well, what if an evil conspiracy had suppressed it? And then what would be the nature of that conspiracy and why? After all, you know, Hertz died at a, a relatively early age. Uh, Maxwell died of cancer at a relatively early age. Maybe someone was killing the uh, electromagnetic scientists to try to hide the hidden truth. And I went ahead and I, I wrote that up as a, uh, uh, the premise is the hero is going to a forgotten technical library, a high school student, and he's discovering that the online scans of old textbooks don't quite line up and match with the books that he has from this overlooked library. And that sets him off on the course of discovering this conspiracy. And you know, I, I, I wrote this back in uh, the, the first book, The Hidden Truth, I wrote back in 2015. So I, I made it an alternate history. Uh, Which has now come true. Thriller. Yeah. Well, yeah, well I, I made an alternate history theory or alternate history thriller because I was concerned uh, people's suspension of disbelief might be challenged by having <laughs> this evil conspiracy bent on global domination, uh, ruthlessly killing people and manipulating events and rewriting history. And you know, people might have trouble believing that. So I said it on an you know, alternate. Uh, Never would uh, happen. Uh, Never. Uh, yeah. It's completely well, impossible the, the, to the, imagine. The, the interesting thing is, that was my. This idea is too. this is I what thought, real ha, science ha, gets you. Me... It's the ability to tell the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, as I was writing the first book, it was almost tongue in cheek because my my vision was 
oh, yes, my, my evil conspiracy is the secret evil conspiracy that pulls the strings on all those other evil conspiracies that you may have heard about. And I thought that would be an amusing uh, technique to do. And Hans has simply now, discovered kind of reality. <laughs> so, so we know we can trust him because he has predicted the future. From 2015, he predicted everything. And this, this fits with what well, Waywell, Wellwell was saying. It's like, if, I, if, oh, Huel. Yeah. Huel. If, if, Huel. if only we had followed what Bacon was telling us, we'd have been able to predict all of this way sooner. Well, he was, uh, uh, you know, Huel was a, a really excellent historian and philosopher of science. In fact, he and Erm, scientist and, and mm. uh, physicist. So, you know, and, and he was a, uh, a Baconian and was genuinely inspired by Bacon's vision of science in service to humanity and what science could do. And you could see from that early Victorian perspective uh, how science and scientific understanding and engineering were making a real difference, improving people's lives with steam power and, and uh, you know, using technology to make a you know better, more prosperous lives for people. So it's very easy to fall into that trap of uh, worshiping science and technology and you know adopting the Baconian program. So we've we've been warned by our 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 platform host, <laughs> Mr. Not Day, um, about falling into these things, and I'm I. I'm trying to disentangle the, 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 the problem here because on the one hand, Bacon, well, Bacon is right in all directions, right? He's, 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 he's right about the possibilities of this kind of experimental science. He's, you know, willing to adopt the idea that there can be a, such a thing as a technocratic rulership. Um, it backfires badly in our present because all of that's come true. So it, is there, I mean, I, I, I suppose both you and Vox seem to have a, a, a faith that there is a way out, which, which we in the arc are not sure about. At the moment. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, we play with this technology. We're inside it. We recognize how we're affected by, you know, the powers that all of this, technological expertise has given us but on the other hand we're we're kind of worried and 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 both and both you both you and vox have been more welcoming of the idea of things like the ai art which we're we have the arc are a little nervous about no i i can you know the all of the technology that we have has created unprecedented opportunities for social control. I mean, it used to be that the, the Stasi had to have 10% of East Germany spying on the other 90% and collecting files on them. And, you know, one person on every floor of the apartment was responsible for monitoring the goings on of all the other people on the floor and reporting to the central uh, you know, secret police headquarters, what was going on. And now all of that can be automated because so much of our interaction with other people is in an online realm that can be easily tapped and monitored. 
Uh, They're listening all, right now. Um, Hi, guys. I'm, I'm sure they are. <laughs> I hope but, we're entertaining tonight. <laughs> Although maybe the thing is, if Kilts and I just carry on with what we're doing, but that, can we keep them confused? <laughs> are they going to figure out what well, we're talking at, about, which is God? At, at the same time as you know, modern technology has made possible this unprecedented level of surveillance and control, it's also made possible an unprecedented ease in sharing information and finding out the truth. I mean, if I remember growing up, if you wanted to know what was going on, you had your local newspaper, or you know, you might pay for a subscription to the New York Times right. or to the, the Wall Street Journal or some some national you know news source. Uh, you know, you there were you know fringe newsletters. You could get Ron Paul's newsletter or uh, politically motivated newspapers from you know like Human Events on the conservative side, and the, you know the communists had their own party newsletter. If you wanted to see news from a particular ideological perspective, you know now all of those sources of information and myriad more are available at the the click of a mouse. So if you can escape the idols of the theater and just go out on the internet and start poking around and doing your own research, whether they like it or not, uh, you can come up with a wealth of information that uh, just simply would not have been available for people to piece together uh, you know, in the past. And it's just utterly amazing how many of the, the pieces of what's going on are so easily available these days. I mean, you start looking back in history and seeing how, you know, the the main really wasn't sunk by a Spanish mine. And, you know, the Lusitania, you know, it wasn't just an innocent passenger liner that was torpedoed by the evil, wicked Germans. It was carrying munitions in violation of uh, neutrality. And, you know, even today I was reading an analysis on Pearl Harbor. And, you know, it was always pretty clear that America was uh, putting some amount of economic pressure on the, the Japanese empire, trying to uh, get them to, uh, you know, leave China and realizing, yes, it's going to lead to war, but that's a good thing because the American people don't want to go to war their rulers did want to go to war with Nazi Germany, and Pearl Harbor served as an excellent uh, rallying point to motivate the American people to go to war. Now there's there's new emerging evidence that the locations of the Japanese fleet were actually known, and that it was known that a Japanese fleet was heading to Pearl Harbor, and yet you know no warnings were given. So the the attack may well have been deliberately invited. Okay, so I noticed things... I noticed something about the examples you just gave. They're all there's a what? theme. There's a theme. Well, there, yeah. there what what theme do you notice? It all seems connected to war. That, definitely. It's also history. It's all events. It's yeah. it's and and therefore the problem is I mean that this is okay, so what this 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 I wonder about Barry because we've gone from talking about waves and particles and waves and energy to whether or not such and such happened are these are these different kind are these different categories of knowledge uh, 
in the sense that you use different methods to uh, understand what's going on in the context of history you're using uh, eyewitness accounts of people who were involved in the events there's you know secondary documentation i mean you can uh, the interesting to start to pull up the uh, you know the payroll records or the uh, the operational readiness records of units involved in combat and uh, you know they end up sometimes rewriting the official histories because you can take a look at the supporting documentation and realize there are problems with the official histories and that uh, okay uh, this you know, the, is this the real story was something this else. has gone in a place that I'm just gonna side side the train went off this other direction all right so we <laughs> you did it um, so we were supposed to be talking about science and we were supposed to get to like Plato and Aristotle and the difference between induction and and deduction and induction so we got we got the guys on screen now from the Raphael image but notice notice that say the 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 what Bacon was talking about understanding physical processes yes and and controlling I mean I, I it didn't seem to me in the New Atlantis and I do admit that that's mainly what I've read of his um that he was trying to I mean, think about what I do is, you know, in history, it's like you're understanding all of those things of the tribe. You're trying to understand the idols of the tribe. You're just trying to understand the idols of the cave. You're just like you're studying how those those idols actually are activated and hoping to get to a clarity, but that it's still part of what people believe, what I believe, what expert, you know, what what exchange of ideas is and, you know, the propaganda. Right. So it, it, there, it seems to me like and, and what's interesting is since you do both the science study of the material processes, the natural processes and the storytelling, you just you just slid from one to the other in your example of like well, it, that was so wave particle. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Will you just talk more, please? Kilts, what have you been hearing him talk about? Because I think he just pulled a fast one on us. Oh, he did <laughs> <laughs> well no because i'm thinking like you know uh he's described the the scientists as being involved in the quantitative and and you know measuring massa right but then the, the fast one is about all of these multiple stories that they're 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 using to you know keep uh keep up in the air to be able to um see which one fits the data better now that's interesting well, because we've got multiple narratives then that you have to uh, you have to keep, but that kind that, of that, that is conflict exactly. with your entire <laughs> ability that, that to exactly. say whether or not something is true or false, right? I mean, uh, can you have that, multiple exactly. stories and truth at the same time? You can absolutely, and in fact, that's one of the points that I tried to make clear in the, my book, which is at etherzar.substack.com. Hans is uh, trying to teach us how to market. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, etherzar.substack.com. There. A-E-T-H-E-R-C-Z-A-R. But uh, the you know, science is a series of stories we tell about the world. It's a collection of models that we use to try to organize what we see out in reality. And it's interesting 
how a lot of the stories that we still use and the models that we still use today, how ancient their origin is. I talked a little bit about uh, the continuum or plenum or field approach versus the uh, atomic or particle approach. I mean, that goes back to ancient Greece. And science has oscillated back and forth between those two extremes. And in the present day, it's come to rest on this sort of unholy fusion of the two in a mutually contradictory way in wave-particle duality. But science has also oscillated between an Aristotelian or inductive uh, observational approach that was first uh, you know, laid out and used by Aristotle versus the more deductive approach that was pioneered by, by Plato. And that's, that's what the, uh, the, the chart about uh, Plato and Aristotle here is meant to show. Okay, are they both true? They are both co-essential aspects of understanding uh, you know, how things work. And you, you can go on the next slide, uh, you can kind of see how that cycle works. Uh, you know, on the internet, Plato, these sort of cycles are usually devious, right? <laughs> they're, they're showing us how, how we, get, we just get caught in this non-knowledge state because of the, 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 I think this is idol of theater again. Oh, we have to be very careful to avoid the uh, you know getting getting trapped in those idols, or at least if we're trapped in the idol uh, of of the theater, to take whatever dogmas we have and try to understand as many alternates possible, so that we can see which of those dogmas best fits the uh, uh, the events or you know, what we're seeing. Okay, so we're still we still you were st you, we were not going to let you off the hook because you slipped from natural events to historical events. Um, it's all stories all the way down. <laughs> you know, it, it's a great it's a great sorrow to me that I didn't ever get to meet Terry Pratchett. I think he lived near my father in law, well, in Bath, and I he lived like nearby, and I didn't get to meet him. The stories take on life of their own and, and want to be told. Um, no, okay, so well, Ken in, Ken in our chat is saying, you can't test history. Experimental, empirical experiments elude this domain. Which is, is no, is no, but the, the thing is, it's, we were joking about Hans's Hidden Truth, which you guys really need to read because it's really fun. Um, and totally convincing. I mean, it's I read it two year, a year ago, two years ago, and I it was like reading history that had just happened, which he invented in 2015 as a projection into the future. <laughs> um, that if if you can, you know, give a character of truth to a story by way of observing how people behave and the likelihood of their behaving in certain ways, and it can feel predictive. That's an interesting sort of thing. I mean, it's like you can you can predict a, a likely scenario, and yet we can't figure out what actually happened in the past, except for we can, because it seems like people do behave in categorically explicable ways. So we should be able to, to look back and say, yeah, people start wars with false flags all the time. We fell for that one. Absolutely. <laughs> mm. 
and you know, uh, you know, absolutely right. You can't. You know, it, there are different methods involved in establishing truth and identifying which which model is correct in in different uh, areas. In history, uh, no, you can't. Uh, you know, sadly, we don't have the the nexus detector that I uh, uh, suppose in my stories where we can. Uh, detect the splitting of timelines and possibly interact with alternate timelines to see what happens if events go one way and what happens if events go the other way. Uh, I'm I'm really enamored of that concept from a literary perspective because it opens up some really wonderful storytelling opportunities. But you know, sadly, I'm not. I, I don't think there's a justification for the whole many worlds view of quantum mechanics. So when we look at history, we're kind of stuck with a linear course of events. Uh, so about all we can do is take two similar settings where different things happened and compare one to the other and try to see, well, what might be the causal factors that explain why events went one way here and went the other way over there. Well, with history, we're also dealing with the fact that we have storytellers making the accounts at the time when the events that we think happened happened and storytellers lie all the time. I mean, my, my favorite one, no, my favorite one is one, my colleague, Richard Landis, who I also leaned on a lot because of the, the, the predictive nature his work had for whether or not people get freaked out by apocalyptic moments <laughs> because mm -hmm. they keep, they're continually trying to project into the future that the end is coming because we all want to be at the end of the story because then meaning happens, right? It's like the end comes and everything collapses into significance, which is very tempting to want to be on, in on. Um, that Richard's first book was on the, the completely forged account of the apostolic life of St. Marshall of Limoges, right? Limoges needed its own like apostolic saint because they were in competition with other shrines in the region. And so um, Adamar Siobhan just made it all up. <laughs> And, 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 and that St. Marshall was actually, you know, accepted as apostolic for some time until, oh, this, this comes to Mabillon, who I was talking about last week with, with um, the reason Echo used him as his, his um, Trojan horse to get you to believe in his story, that, you know, Mabillon and his contemporaries were the ones in the 17th century that start saying, no, wait a minute, we can compare these different accounts and they don't match reality. I mean, storytellers do it all the time. They make up events. Well, even in the context of just like you science, did. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the context of science, you know, many times people will knowingly use incorrect models mm. uh, because they work well enough for the purpose in a particular Ooh, I think context. you have a model here. You, you have a model here. There's retrograde motion and a deferent and an epicycle. Oh, you're free to use the slides. Those You're already into my backup slides. You know, oh, well, here we go. <laughs> well, what I was talking about... He gave them um, to me beforehand, you realize, so I know where we go. Maybe. We, we've got planetary motion now. Ooh, I like the spirograph. Can we go to the spirograph? I like that one. Okay. Well, the spirograph yeah, epicycles yeah, versus here, here the. I wanted a freewheeling open discussion. You're forcing. You me gave me an order of slides. 
the the point that I was making, uh, that I wanted to make, that I had these slides to support, was just showing the wealth of scientific thinking and models from the uh, you know pre Baconian era. Uh, you know, if, if we go back to that original slide showing the deference and epicycles, it's basically showing how the, uh, the, you know, the, the planetary motion was modeled and interpreted. You know, Aristotle, his understanding of geometry was not uh, you know, all that great. All they had at that point was lines and circles. And so Aristotle in his physics thought that uh, terrestrial motion was linear and celestial motion was circular. So how do we explain the motion of the planets? Well, it must be a lot of circles. And to their credit, uh, the, the Ptolemaic model and, and the people who modeled the solar system that way did a remarkably good job modeling the, uh, the solar system. Uh, all of those epicycles and deference, all that superposition of circular motions really remarkably similar to what engineers and scientists use today in uh, Fourier theory. In Fourier theory, we take time domain waveforms describing oh, signals or, or other processes, and we assume that they are superpositions of different sine waves with different magnitudes and different frequencies, and use that to explain uh, the signal or to break it down into spectral components. And that's really what the Ptolemaic system was doing. It was taking planetary motion and breaking it down into uh, the superposition of circular motion. So I, I think it doesn't get uh, as much credit for sophistication as it should. It way, sure way but looks it, more sophisticated, like all these like spirography things. This I this this Copernican is that the Copernican one? The sun at the center. Yeah, that's the way too simple. Uh, it. It is way too simple. It's also uh, grossly inaccurate. And when the Copernican system came out with all of its pretty circles, uh, <laughs> it you know, looked like a pretty. See, this is you know, well, generations of, of of students have been lured into thinking that the Copernican system was more accurate because it got a better picture. Uh, and no, it was. It, it you still had to add the little circles and the deference and the epicycles around the planetary motion in order to correct for uh, uh, the, the motion in the Copernican model. It wasn't you mean until... Galileo was wrong? Okay, now we can do freewheeling. Did they? Did we go to the moon? No. <laughs> you invited it. <laughs> well, I, so, but that's, that's the thing. That the, 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 so the historical event alternative reality is a debate about the idol, the idols of the the tribe in the theater. Yes, I think the idols of the marketplace sounds like the semiotic stuff that the echo was playing with. The like whether we can just do we that we can speak accurately, right? And and right. the and the idols well, of right. the cave are the degree to which, for example, I am incapable of thinking of anything except in terms of Mary. No, wait. <laughs> It, go, it all ends up at her eventually. It's 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 fine, right? Whereas the 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 um the moon one is both a historical event and a likelihood of physical prop you know physical action. So, well, I think there's a tendency once you realize that people lie 
and that people have fed you false narratives to try to control you. There is an uh, immediate assumption, uh, you know, a, a leap to, well, what if they're all lies and you, know, you end up with your whole flat earth uh, uh, thinking. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, although I am not a flat earther, it is, I really like talking with a lot of flat earthers because in many cases they're more honest and uh, using better modes of thought than the, the, the round earthers who are saying, well, you know, all smart people think the earth is round and all the authorities say it's round, you know, who don't really understand the rationale and the evidence behind their conclusion. They're just taking it on. They're faith. idols of the tribe. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, flat, the flat earthers who are shining their laser beams over the surfaces of uh, lakes, uh, yeah, I, I have a lot more respect for than the round earthers who are making appeals to uh, authority. In fact, I, I put the, the anecdote in the first chapter of my book about what happened at the first hydrogen bomb tests where scientists wanted to have an unobstructed line of sight to the heart of the fireball for their instruments to make mm. their measurements. So they had Navy engineers construct a pipe over the course of about, what, four kilometers, like maybe two and a half miles or so, uh, to go uh, out to a bunker where all the instruments were. And the, the Navy engineers constructed the pipe, and then the scientists complained, the pipe's not straight, you can't see through it. And when they checked the calculations, it was because the Navy engineers made the pipe level instead of straight. <laughs> and the curvature of the earth was mm -hmm. enough to uh, raise the pipe in the middle. So they had to bow the pipe down just a little huh. bit in the middle to restore a, a straight line of sight out to the, the, the side of the fireball. So you know, and that's really the kind of experiment you have to do if you want to, to test Earth's curvature. Because there's all kinds of interesting diffraction effects you get when you start trying to shine beams of light through air that has temperature gradients and, and, and uh, you know, things like that. But what really got the uh, Copernican model going was uh, you know, Tycho Brahe took a whole bunch of very, very detailed, very accurate measurements of the planets. Mm. And his successor, Johannes Kepler, uh, took a look at that data and started trying to organize it. And he had this fascinating preconceived model of the uh, platonic solids that he thought uh, uh, explained what was going on in the next slide. And he was trying to fit the data to, to fit this preconceived notion of how he thought the orbits must be arranged. And ultimately he realized that there's no way those orbits can be circles. So he started thinking outside the box mm -hmm. and realized that they had to be ellipses. And that was the, uh, you know, the first of his laws of planetary motion, where you know, he took a look at the data and he realized the data was best fit by an ellipse. And then on further analysis, he was able to come up with a couple other more subtle principles like that planets sweep out equal areas in equal time. So when they're closer to the sun, they're moving faster. When they're further away, they move more slowly. And he came up with a, a fascinating mathematical relationship that the square of the orbital period is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis. So you know, he came up with this mathematical principle, no real idea why that would necessarily be the case, but you know, that was his third law of planetary motion. And really, the problem was that Aristotle 
and all of uh, you know his contemporaries, they were thinking in terms of lines and circles for describing reality. And sadly, uh, well, what you really need is something called conic sections. And there's a whole slide that talks about conic sections and how they work. Uh, if you take a cone and you run a plane through it, orthogonal to the axis, the intersection between the plane and the cone is a circle. But if you start to tilt the plane, you get uh, an ellipse. And if you tilt it uh, in far enough, you'll get a parabola. And that is the geometry of motion. And it was actually known in ancient times. Apollonius of Perga uh, you know, did some work describing conic sections. And it's thought Archimedes worked with conic sections as well. But uh, that knowledge was not widely available. It was largely forgotten, and it had to be rediscovered. And it wasn't until that was rediscovered that the, the physics of motion could really be mathematically understood and analyzed. Uh, in, in the next slide, you see a, uh, a, uh, an engraving, a, I forget whether it was a book on artillery or an artillery handbook or what the nature of the work it came from is. But you can see how, uh, you know, there's a picture of how a cannonball fires. And when it's close to the earth, why it must follow terrestrial motion and be moving in a straight mm. line. But then it gets far enough into the heavens that it follows a circular path. And then as it's coming closer to the earth, it resumes a terrestrial straight line motion. <laughs> and you know, so that, that was what was called the three-part model of how uh, you know, artillery shells were fired, which of course was a, 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 a very important uh, uh, military technology of the period, trying to make range tables, you know, so much powder makes the shell go so far and, and so forth. But, you know, even Leonardo, e earlier than that, you can see the sketch from his Madrid notebook uh, of the, uh, uh, how, you know, he could see that the trajectories were, weren't as simple as straight lines, circular sections, and another mm. straight line, but they were really uh, parabolic uh, arcs. And uh, uh, it was really not until Galileo came around in 1632 in his discourse on the two world systems that he explained how that all worked and how you could take these conic sections and uh, parabolas and use them to describe uh, the motion of projectiles. And the clever way he came up with doing that was to have an inclined plane and to roll a ball uh, on the plane, so it would you know fall more slowly in a way that he could trace out exactly what the path was on the plane, and he found those paths were invariably uh, parabolas. So you know, th and and that's how the the science of motion, understanding that projectile motion is uh, parabolas, was uncovered. And you know, I don't know if there was a connection between Bacon and all of this emerging uh, you know, early 17th century science, I doubt Bacon had much communication with mm. Kepler because you know, Kepler published his work in 1609. And you know, we're talking about Bacon's work coming out in, well, depending on 
whether you're talking about the new Atlantis or was it Nova Organum, mm -hmm. uh, you know, later in the following decade, uh, Galileo may have been aware of Bacon. I did a quick search. I couldn't find any particular connection between Bacon and Galileo. Uh, it's likely he was at least aware of uh, Bacon because those those books and those ideas would have uh, spread and been been communicated across uh, the uh, across Europe. But you know, a deliberate, obvious inspiration isn't really mm. evident there. So what you so, sorry, Hans. So what what you've basically just described there is like everyone in the world thinking in terms of two D, and then suddenly having this. <laughs> like very yeah. random and phenomenal leap into like a 3d kind of way of viewing objects traveling through space-time like, well, it's not it's it's not even 3d it's just moving beyond euclidean geometry and moving beyond lines and circles into more complex and it turned out the mathematical tools you needed to understand motion uh, were conic sections and sadly although the ancients knew about conic sections that knowledge mm -hmm. was not widespread and it was largely forgotten and so people were busy uh, modeling reality from stories where you know aristotle's story of you know terrestrial motion being linear and celestial motion being circles and they mm -hmm. ran with 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 that particular preconception and uh it wasn't until kepler made the the breakthrough that hey you know these orbits uh, could be ellipses that uh, uh, you know, the, the correct geometry was discovered. And of course, it was Galileo who uh, you know, was experimenting and made one, I guess the earliest telescopes were made in the Netherlands, but Galileo uh, heard about it and was able to construct his own uh, pretty soon thereafter and observed the, what well, he called them the uh, Medician satellites. Yeah, that's because he was doing that's he was doing idols of the market uh, no theater there, by um. Well, he was yeah he was, he was playing up to his well uh, to his potential sponsors. <laughs> he he, yeah. he 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 did he he published the Starry Messenger and when he was in Padua, right? Pisa, which one he was he was teaching he was he was employed by Venice and he wanted to move back to Florence and so when he saw the. The moons of Jupiter. He called them the Medician stars because he wanted a job, <laughs> and it worked. But then he ends up back in Florence, and there, the Grand Duchess Christina is actually, you know, friends with a bunch of Dominicans, and they're a little more suspicious of him, and etc. <laughs> but of course, this is a this is a classic example of how the Catholic Church was anti-science and denounced these new discoveries of uh, Galileo. And uh, we're trying to suppress the, the emerging uh, science to fit their preconceived religious worldview, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's actually an excellent uh, series of articles written by the sadly uh, uh, science fiction writer Michael Flynn on the, uh, the, the Galilean controversy, where he goes into great detail on... Uh, how Galileo managed to you know, systematically annoy and and uh, uh, you know, violate his word and piss off the Pope. Particularly you know, when you portray the Pope as being a simple-minded fool in your discourse on the world systems, that's that doesn't go over very well. Well, it's not just the Pope; it was his friend. 
So it's, yeah. if we talk yeah. about it's like we're, we're, we're caught in the Internet wars right now of everybody ending up, you know, at, at odds with whoever they were on the platform with last. Galileo did that. Yes. Um, OK, so so I'm we have, you know, we, we have some more time here. And we got through all your slides. I was, I was, I was actually wanting to make sure that you got to make the argument you wanted to. Um, are we worried about science? I mean, we brought we brought up a number of examples of ways in which the idols, which I think for me was always the very mm -hmm. interesting thing. The Bacon, Bacon, he's aware of the problem of you know the way our preconceptions and storytelling distort our ability to see what's going on in the natural world. But I will, now I will seize the, seize the, 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 the conversation for a minute and go back to something that came up when I was talking about echo, right? That he sets up, he set, sets up um, his main character, William of Baskerville, as if he's the, the scientific observer who is able to, you know, use eyeglasses and understand humor and such and, dedu and deduce it is deduction, right? He sees the guy go to the bathroom and he says that's where the bathroom is. That That is, am I doing it right? Is that, that's no, I think that's okay. induction. He's looking at the facts. I get it completely backwards. Okay, um, so he's indu inducting that the the horse is named Brunellus because, no, wait, is that deduction or induction? Which is it? Let's, let's get this straight. I'll at least know this. That's probably a deduction because he's starting from the axiom of, uh, uh, you know, all abbots would... would would name their if... horses Brunellus. Okay, so the deduction is start from the abbots name their horses Brunellus. This horse is named Brunellus. Well, it goes it goes back to that circular uh, uh, plot I showed. We can go back to the plot, and, uh, <laughs> because you take a look at you know facts and particular evidence in order to come up with your. Uh, premises, your axioms, your conclusions, from which you make further deductions. So it's really kind of a circular. That's why it's confusing. Process. Okay, so he deduces that the horse is named Brunellus because abbots tend to name their horses Brunellus because Brunellus is always used in the models of storytelling stories about horses. Right. But he induces, inducts. I would say that he he uses his familiarity with. How frequently the name is used in those uh, academic treatises to uh, come up with the principle that uh, you know, in general, a logician would name would use that name for a horse, and then he deduces that this particular uh, uh, abbot would use that name. Right. For okay. A horse. So in the book, so in I the book, he does that deduction, although he's also figured out is, is it a deduction or induction this is actually helpful to me <laughs> that in the book he he says um they must be going after the horse because we saw footprints of a horse is that induction or deduction that is taking uh, observations and facts and drawing conclusions and that's induction. okay so he uses both which is okay yeah. so he, indu he inducts that there is a horse and deducts that the horse is named Brunellus. Yes. Okay. Very good. Um, in <laughs> that was helpful. Um, in in the story, the point is that William of Baskerville, not really a follower of William of Ockham, but in fact, obviously a nod to being William of Ockham, 
is Franciscan and, and more interested in the study of the natural world because that's what at least Echo is playing at the the Franciscans being. Um, but I know from my own reading of Franciscans of that generation or, or the previous generation um, that they're very interested in studying the natural world, particularly through Aristotle, particularly through reading things like the physics and the metaphysics and uh -huh. the animals and such. Um, they're also interested in the study of medicine and and and, and such. But the, the particular Franciscan I'm working on right now, Servus Sanctus of Faenza, um, mm. is very interested in using natural examples in his stories to you move from the the you know the creature, which and they are all creatures, right? Because we're talking about creation. They move from the creature and its properties, so both its form and all of its different things that are proper to that that creature. Um, to, you know, higher understanding about things like, you know, moral behavior and ultimately contemplation of God. Well, I'm not as familiar with the Franciscans. The, the Dominicans, I know, had a, you did a great deal of scientific work. Uh, well, wasn't Albertus Magnus? Uh, He's Dominican, Dominican, yeah. Yeah. And teacher and, you know, of was, Aquinas, uh, right. 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 So the, the, and, the, you, you know, had actually asked me for some help on a chapter in your book, Fields and Energies, to be purchased. Um, that, that, I mean, one of, one of the, the idols of the theater, I think, is there was no science before Copernicus, right? And, um, or that no, no one, everyone was stuck doing uh, Aristotelian syllogisms and useless. Uh, disputations of how many angels were dancing on pins until Bacon came and uh, taught everyone how to do real science, and that kicked off the scientific revolution. Right. Um, but what I showed you some of this stuff that things like one, the reason Copernicus, you know, has the expertise to be able to do all that planetary tracking that he does is because monks have been doing it for fifteen hundred years <laughs> because they need it as a clock for predicting the future of like when the full moons are going to come so they can know when Easter is. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of, it's, it's interesting that we, maybe this is my question. We went from science, which was study the natural world because it shows us its maker. Mm -hmm. um, you know, follow the motions of the heavens because that shows us when our worship times should come. And right. that this is all a lesson in our moral behavior because the creatures show us what we should be, the beauty of our being in this system. I've, I'm not going to be happy with the idea that we suddenly, oh, we're going to like break it all to make it better. Which seems to me where modern technology ended up. Well, it's using the stated goal uh, is, you know, the, the idol of the theater is that science and technology are used to make a better life for humanity. Right. And unfortunately, the nature of that better life is the, the technocrats have, are fixated on this uh, cultish Malthusian 
uh, view that the world is overpopulated, and so we have to bamboozle people into uh, starving themselves right. and uh, you know not sterilizing uh, themselves, sterilizing themselves, and you know, decreasing fertility and 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 so forth. And you know, I, I think there's nothing wrong inherently with the idea of that science can be a tool to improve the human condition. But, uh, you know, man, the way they're going about it, I think, has false and evil premises that are going to be disastrous, well, have been disastrous in, in practice. So how would you, as a scientist, change their minds? Well, I think if you can point out that the scientific story we have been telling for over a hundred years is wrong in a particularly simple and easy and obvious way once it's pointed out that you hopefully would be able to instill enough humility to get people to check their premises to take a look at the the idols of the theater that have trapped them in their dogma and maybe be open to an alternate approach and that's part of what i want to do with with my mm. research because i as i said I'm, I'm amazed that the stuff i've done wasn't done earlier you know in retrospect from from my perspective it seems so utterly simple and so utterly obvious that uh, you know, I, I still don't understand why no one, no one looked at this mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, you know, even though it, you know, I was confronted with it directly, I mean, I had the great good fortune in grad school to work uh, for or to have on my my thesis committee uh, Professor John Wheeler, who was one of the the. Uh, he, he was a little too young to be one of the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, but he worked intimately with Niels Bohr and with a lot of those uh, quantum mechanical uh, pioneers. At, you know, and he adopted the whole Copenhagen interpretation. He was fond of saying it from bit, that information was fundamental to reality. And he really adopted all of the Copenhagen, uh, you know, consciousness and observation are essential to measurement. And, you know, the, the, the essence of that quantum mechanical theory is unless someone hears the tree fall in the forest, it does, you can't really say that the tree falls. So only once you have measured it, are you collapsing the wave function to a particular uh, uh, answer. And so the measurement is critical. But anyway, I went one day and I talked with Professor Wheeler because I had just found out about uh, what's called pilot wave theory, which is a causal approach to how quantum mechanics works. And I knew that Professor Wheeler had done all of this fundamental work on quantum measurement theory. He'd written a, a, a big book on quantum measurement theory, and I wanted to know what his take on it was. So I asked him, well, what do you think of pilot wave theory? And his answer was, oh, screwdriver theory of quantum mechanics and quite sure what he meant by that so i asked him well have you written a paper or is there a section in one of your books or where could i go to learn more about your analysis of the pilot wave theory and why you don't like it 
And he paused a moment and looked away. And then he looked back at me and he said, you know, I really ought to look into that someday <laughs> so I can tell what's wrong with it. <laughs> and it was very clear operating from an assumption of why, of course, it has to be wrong without ever having spent any significant time and energy figuring out why he, he never you know, stepped outside his particular idol of the theater mm-hmm. to consider that, you know, there might be some alternate idols there. And, you know, he, he, he was, I mean, Bohr apparently by all accounts had this very intoxicating uh, influence on people. You know, people would talk with Bohr and they'd be caught up and become Copenhagen zombies. And, uh, you know, that, that influence uh, is pervasive through physics. So I can see that it happened and I can understand yeah, and people just never took alternate perspectives seriously and never never really looked at them. They were dismissed out of hand by uh, a lot of the key figures that everyone respected. So I can see that it happened, but I'm still at a bit of a loss to understand why it happened and how the stuff that I've done could have been overlooked for so long. So that's part of why I'm, I'm fascinated by digging into Bacon and uh, to the history of science to try to understand those questions and to understand, uh, well, how do you go about changing people's perspectives on you know, their, their fundamental models through which they are interpreting the world? It's almost like the cult surrounding the, the, the narrative the cult surrounding the scientific narrative. So trying to change someone's perspective it's to reread, reread the story or to read another story. It's similar to getting people mm-hmm. in or out of uh, a kind of cult devotion, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's critically important to read lots of different stories. It's important to have mm-hmm. different models through which you can try to uh, interpret the events so that you can understand which best fits the facts. And that's the case in science as well as in history, you're trying to understand what's what's going on. If you tr- if you lock yourself into any particular narrative, you will be picking and choosing from the facts and you know, taking the facts that support your narrative and rejecting the facts that call your narrative into question or that can't easily be fit into your narrative. And, you know, and that's when you fall into error and mistake. So this would be science versus scientism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We did it! And, <laughs> well, you know, Bacon has a lot of good things to say about that. You know, if, if you want to dig into Bacon more, I really have to give a strong shout out to uh, Robert Frederick who uh, does the Hidden Life is Best uh, podcast. You, know, you can go to his website at the hidden best, or thehiddenlifeisbest.com. Uh, I first heard about him uh, through a podcast he did with James Dellingpool mm. on the, the Dellingpod. It was just absolutely excellent, the, the, the scope of his thinking. And you know, if, if you want to understand why it's likely that Bacon wrote Shakespeare uh, how Bacon was probably you know, deeply immersed in uh, Freemasonic uh, rituals and you know, you know, uh, Freemasonry became publicly known in uh, England. 
and how Bacon was uh, probably also one of the originators of the Rosicrucian movement, which is effectively an early precursor to modern-day transhumanism. Uh, you know, mm. Bacon really was at the center of an effort. You know, he, he wasn't just a father of science. He really was, in many respects, very likely the father of modern-day scientism at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I knew it! I knew it! <laughs> he's, he's, explicitly he... in his writings in the New Atlantis, which you've already gone over, you can see how being a kind of uh, technocratic worldview of science being used uh, as a means of controlling and guiding society. Oh, wait a minute. We were right all along. The Gnostic strikes again. We did it. We did it. Okay. So I promise to let you go to bed sometime before. No, if you have to go to bed right now to get your midnight, right? No, I'm fine. I took a nap. Oh, okay. You could take a nap. (laughs) Well, thank you all for joining us. This is the biggest audience we've ever had because Hans got his oh, groupies good. here too, which is good. <laughs> and we should say you need to subscribe to unauthorized.tv on Logos and History so that the next time you can come in and ask Hans questions through our through our chat mm-hmm. and you can support us um, and you could support his work. I've got his ethers are um screen up right now all of his links and we're all multiply connected out there in the interwebs because we believe in evangelizing the light <laughs> thank you well I, I do have one final piece of advice for you and for our watchers here go. keep calm make physics great again yes <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back, Hans. We have yet more to talk about. You'll 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 be back. We we promise. We'll okay, br- we'll great. bring him back. All right. And and Kilt, you better be here next week too, because I ain't doing this on my own again. <laughs> oh no! Now now I know the Rosicrucians have started the transhumanism. I got to come back. I got yeah, questions. Yeah, we got questions. I need I need to know if I actually need to get uploaded to the internet or if that's a... <laughs> or if I avoid it. We will find out. Thank you all for joining us. Good night.